So we'll start. Anyone who's not here can join us when they get here. Uh, to start with, were there any questions that you wanted to go over from last time or issues related to the homework that you wanted to discuss? Delta nu in the summary slides is all for the, for the power, power broadened line width. Yeah. Okay, so we have a natural line width that has uh, a line width with this, which is gamma over two pi. So the well, in that formula, in the summary page, delta nu is the, uh, well, what is that formula that you're referring to? Is it this? Delta nu equals something like delta nu over 1 plus i over i sat square root? That delta nu is natural line width. But in the book, I think, is in some of the exercises, uh, we use the 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 partial line width instead of the natural line. Okay, so um, so the question is basically when you're calculating the broadened line width, what is being broadened? And if you have, there's various mechanisms that can broaden the line width. Doppler broadening, pressure broadening, uh, saturation broadening. And when we were sort of deriving these, we were in essence assuming that the effect we were considering was the only effect that was present. Meaning in the absence of that effect, we had a natural line width, delta nu, that was gamma over 2 pi. And then if we include whatever broadening mechanism, say Doppler broadening, that is going to take this line width and uh, essentially spread it out over some greater spectral region. And that increase in the line width uh, is what we were calling the, the, uh, the broadened line width. Now when you have, for example, saturation broadening, saturation broadening doesn't take a particular line and move it around um, to blur it out. Rather, it compresses the peak, resulting in a, an increased full width path max. And if that's the case, then the line width that is the line profile that you're starting with that's getting compressed on center is the one that you use in the formula. Should look something like this. And in the notes there were some this I saturation was written in terms of some other fundamental parameters. So this line width here is going to be whatever the line width would be in the absence of saturation. 
So if you have multiple broadening mechanisms present and you've calculated uh, whichever one is the dominant one before you consider saturation, that line width goes in there and then any saturation further broadens it. V velocity. So for transit time broadening, there was an expression which looked something like uh, some numerical factors, and for a Gaussian beam, I think they worked out to be 0.37. This V is okay, so this is the velocity transverse to a beam of width w. So if this is your beam profile, so as your beam is propagating in this direction, it has some physical width. And uh, at its narrowest, the width, well, let me just call that w to keep it consistent with the notation here. I believe that was the diameter of the beam. Actually, w is probably the Gaussian radius, which would make that 2w. Um, if your material itself is moving, for example, you're measuring chemical composition of something that's in a flowing jet, or the exhaust of a car, or in some other form that's physically moving relative to the beam, then V is going to be the velocity of that flow. However, in the absence of some bulk motion, you still have microscopic motion of the atoms, just Brownian motion. Particularly if, it's, uh, if the mean free path of that motion is greater than the size of the beam, then that Brownian motion can cause the atoms to transit through the beam. And if that's the case, the velocity that you use would be the thermal velocity. And so we had one estimate of the thermal velocity, which we called the most probable velocity, which is that that makes the kinetic energy of a molecule equal to uh, 1 equal to the thermal energy in a mode. Okay. Uh, but it's not, the, the thermal energy is not always fixed here. It depends on the degree of the Yes. So that's just, so you will get different values, for example, if you have a gas that's in three dimensions versus a uh, material that's somehow constrained to two dimensions or a one-dimensional material. Okay, so what we're going to do today is uh, basically out of chapter 6 in Demtroder, it's looking at the basic experimental setups that would be used for absorption spectroscopy today. And then next time we'll talk about emission spectroscopy. And we'll look at a few of the uh, general mechanisms that you can use or general experimental tricks you can use to improve the resolution of a measurement.
Okay, so today we'll just do absorption spectroscopy. Uh, Wednesday we'll do emission spectroscopy. Uh, it might take us three days to get through these two subjects, so a little bit of time for uh, adjusting the schedule is necessary. So uh, let me start with just a picture of our sort of canonical absorption measurements. Uh, let's take a tunable laser. We can adjust the frequency of that. Uh, we send it through some material. I'll let that be a gas that might be contained in the little glass cell. And then we have a photodetector. And as we tune the laser frequency, we plot the power on the photodetector. And that gives us uh, a plot of the absorbed power as a function of frequency. It has whatever spectral content we are measuring. Um, these different bullet points list different ways to improve the resolution of this experiment. Okay, so in the experiment as shown, you're going to be limited by the ability to resolve changes in intensity of this laser with your photodetector or, depending on the, the laser, the free-running stability of this laser. Okay, so if this laser has an intensity that's not constant in time, then you would have to, say, put in a beam splitter and take the difference of these two and that would give you the absorbed power. If the laser has intensity noise, um, and these photodetectors are not well matched, then even in the absence of any absorption of the gas, the ability of these two output signals to cancel may change depending on the input intensity. Okay, so if the photodetectors aren't completely linear over the, the range of operation, or if the distances from the laser to the detectors is different, then intensity noise can cause the power reaching one detector to be, say, at a peak of the, the noise while the other one's at a valley of the noise. And therefore, noise can couple through and limit the uh, absorbed power that you can detect based on the residual values of this, uh, this subtraction, even in the absence of anything that's absorbing the power. And if that's not the case, if you have perfectly matched detectors such that the absolute power is always the, the difference between the detectors um, is independent of the absolute power of the laser in the absence of the presence of this gas. Then inserting the gas here 
should cause a decrease in the power at photodetector 2, meaning some absorbed power being measured. But these detectors themselves are noisy. There are a couple different things that introduce noise into the detectors. Some of them are things you can control, like the ambient light. Other things are more fundamental in nature, like the shot noise of the laser radiation that causes uncorrelated noise between these two detectors. That's proportional to the square root of the laser power. And so if you have uncorrelated noise between these detectors, that noise won't subtract out. So there's some minimum amount of uh, fluctuations you'd expect just due to the noise. And your absorbed power needs to be greater than that noise in order to be detected. Okay, So that noise has a magnitude that varies strongly with frequency. And in this particular diagram that I've shown, the experiment is being done basically at DC, very low frequency. Constant output power for the laser shines in. You're measuring that constant value being transmitted and the constant value being uh, constant intensity being put into the gas and taking the difference. So it's constant over your measurement time, however long you wait before you tune the laser to the next frequency. Turns out, low frequency like that is where the noise is the highest. Okay, at higher frequencies, there's much less noise. So you do much better to somehow uh, limit this measurement to a very short time that corresponds to a high frequency. And that's what these, essentially what these different techniques do. Okay, so remind you that the transmitted light through a sample with an absorption coefficient alpha obeys Beer's law, which is to say it's exponentially decaying as a function of length. And for small absorption, you can expand this exponential using a Taylor series and keeping the first terms. We get that the uh, transmitted intensity decreases linearly in length. And we can relate this absorption to the uh, population density, or the population, uh, the relative population difference between the lower and upper state of the absorbing levels in the material and the cross section, the absorption cross section. That's a uh, molecular parameter that's related to the macroscopic parameter alpha. And if we do that, we can write alpha in terms of delta n and sigma and solve for the minimum concentration delta n that we can detect. So we have delta n sigma l here. And that needs to be larger than the minimum change in the detectable intensity, delta i min. And when we divide through the sigma and the l, we get that the minimum detectable concentration in an experiment like this scales with the minimum change in intensity that I can detect. So being able to detect a smaller change in the intensity means you can detect a smaller concentration of, of your uh, material. 
And it scales inversely with the path length. So having a long interaction length improves your detection efficiency, unless you sample essentially more uh, material. And it also depends on the cross-section of the material. So an object that has a large cross-section that easily absorbs radiation, uh, you can detect a smaller concentration of that. Okay, so ideally we want the, um, the relative intensity that we can, noise that we can detect, delta I over I naught, to be as small as possible. That is to say we want the laser to be as stable as possible, and we want the uh, noise from the photodetectors to be as small as possible. That relates to the minimum uh, detectable intensity change. Okay, so um, if we consider what the noise output of a typical photodetector would look like in an experiment like this, or just about any experiment that uses a, a photodetector, you'd see a noise spectrum that looks something like this. Here I plotted uh, frequency on this axis and the voltage noise. Um, forget about the funny units in this for a moment. That's standard notation for denoting noise. Um, at low frequency, we have relatively high noise. And as frequency increases, that noise decreases to some minimum value. And it remains at minimum value at higher and higher frequencies. So there's sort of three regions of interest here. At very low frequency, there's usually some standard, some, some constant value for the noise. It's independent of frequency up until a point. And then at that point, the noise decreases. Uh, this is called 1 over f noise, because the magnitude of the noise decreases as 1 over the frequency. And then at higher frequencies, there is shot noise, which is white meaning it's frequency independent. And so once this 1 over f noise becomes smaller than the shot noise, then what you see is just the shot noise. OK, so this 1 over f noise comes from the fact that um, there's all sorts of uh, both mechanical motion, electrical motion uh, of things in the detector, in the environment around us that are driven usually by thermal energy. And the thermal energy in every sort of oscillator that makes up everything that uh, is at thermal dynamic equilibrium is kT. And for an oscillator, the kinetic energy is 1 half mv squared, where v is omega a. a is the amplitude, omega is the natural frequency of the oscillator. It's just treating everything that's moving as a simple harmonic oscillator. Um, if that's the case, you can say that the amplitude of motion of a simple harmonic oscillator, if the total energy has to be constant, is inversely proportional to the frequency, the natural frequency of the oscillator. Okay, so if you think of, um, think of all the types of oscillation you can have. So uh, this screen oscillating around its equilibrium position. It's a very low frequency oscillation uh, on the order of a hertz. And its amplitude is relatively large okay, when driven by thermal energy. You compare that to uh, the motion of a, say, a charged particle that has some thermal energy. 
um, around its equilibrium position, that's going to have a much higher resonant frequency, but a much smaller amplitude. It's not going to move by centimeters, it's going to move by um, picometers. So that's where the inverse relationship between frequency and amplitude comes from. So all those things can introduce noise. Uh, so a moving screen just causes a glare that might hit our photo detector, and as that glare moves around um, and falls on and off the detector, that's one example of how we could get low frequency noise. Everything in the electronics, the optical environment, all have the same 1 over f behavior, and so they all add up to produce this 1 over f noise. So at higher and higher frequencies, that becomes less relevant until it's no longer the dominant noise source and you have shot noise. So you have shot noise down here at low frequency too, it's just it's too small, it's smaller than the other noise sources. Okay, so the idea is that instead of making a measurement at low frequency where the noise is high, um, it would be advantageous to make a measurement at high frequency where the noise is low. And so um, in order to understand how that works, it's worth uh, doing a little bit of math in preparation. So let's consider an absorption profile. It might look like this, some generic absorption profile. Uh, a DC measurement would be where we take our um, laser frequencies at one particular value, we set up this experiment, we measure the absorption, and then we increment the frequency. We basically slowly tune the frequency across that profile, all the while measuring the absorption. We call that a DC measurement. Um, a frequency modulated measurement is a technique where instead of fixing the laser frequency, you dither it. So you have it oscillate around some central frequency. And then you record how much the absorption changes at the frequency at which you're dithering it. Okay, so here is an expression then for uh, the electric field being driven, or the, the laser's electric field. So there's some amplitude. There's your usual cosine omega t. Omega L is the frequency of the laser. But instead of just having whatever the laser frequency is, that frequency has some additional modulation on top of it. Okay, so the frequency is increasing and decreasing by an amount m at a rate of capital omega. So this shows the laser frequency is oscillating with some small amplitude m, so m is going to be small compared to 1, around this value of 1 times the laser frequency. Okay, so it's sweeping back and forth. So this sine wave here represents the uh, oscillating laser frequency, and as it oscillates around some central value, the amount of absorption is going to oscillate as well as it sweeps out different points on this uh, line profile. And because we're able to control the frequency at which this laser is dithered, we can look at that same frequency for any absorption signal. Okay, and by making that a frequency where there is low, low noise, we can improve the signal-to-noise ratio of the measurement compared to a DC measurement. Okay, so a little bit more mathematics. Um, this line profile is alpha of omega. 
So it's a function. It's the absorption is a function of frequency. And so if we just uh, do Taylor series expansion of that function around the laser frequency. So omega L is the laser frequency. D omega is any uh, deviation from that. We have the zeroth order term. We have the first order term, which is the slope. So the zeroth order term is just the average value of the absorption. The first order term is the slope of that absorption profile times however far away we are from that nominal laser frequency. And then higher order terms, which for the moment we will neglect. Neglecting them means we restrict ourselves to regions where delta omega is small. So the change in laser frequency is small, meaning m is much less than 1. Okay, so small deviations around the laser frequency. Okay, so here's what our transmitted intensity will look like. There's the initial intensity that has no absorption. And then this term here, this summation, is the absorption. Remember, the absorption looks like I naught L alpha. And I've written alpha now as this Taylor series. So this is a general form for the Taylor series. And I've explicitly written for delta omega m sine omega t. So I have my m sine omega t. That's the deviation around the, late, the center frequency. And for the nth term in this Taylor series expansion, I get that, that nth term there. OK, so if this is what my absorption looks like, um, in order to detect the uh, amount of absorption at the modulation frequency, I need to do some tricks. And so those tricks are going to be the subject of the next homework assignment. Experimentally, it looks like this. We have a frequency modulator. That's the thing that produces this sinusoidal frequency, which is a function generator. That drives our tunable laser. So the laser is being tuned in frequency. That goes through our sample cell into our detector. That's this experiment up here. The output of the detector is compared to the frequency that I'm modulating at by a device called the lock-in amplifier. And the lock-in amplifier looks for the Fourier frequency component of this signal at the frequency given by this sine wave coming in from the frequency modulator. And that's the amplitude that gets recorded. And so as I sweep the laser frequency across the absorption profile, just like I did before, but now dithering it the whole time, the output of the lock-in amplifier is going to give me um, the magnitude of this sinusoidal variation in the output amplitude at the frequency I'm driving it at.
and that is going to be proportional to sine omega t. I'm sorry, it, well, that's what the lock in detects. That's going to be proportional to the first derivative, so if n is equal to 1, the first derivative of the absorption line. So what I'll detect is not this absorption profile. What I will measure is this, which is the derivative of that absorption profile. And so over here, if the frequency is increasing, the absorption is increasing. If the frequency is decreasing, the absorption is decreasing. Um, I've got a positive slope, a positive value here. At the peak, the slope is 0. As I did through the laser frequency, it makes no change in the output power, so my detected signal is zero. And then over here, I have a negative slope. So there's a 180-degree phase relationship between how I did the laser frequency and how I observe fluctuations in the output, and that results in a negative output signal. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to go through the math of how you turn this into a measurement of this quantity in parentheses. That's in the next homework, and there's sufficient detail in the instructions of the homework to get you started on doing that. Um, so for now, I'll just say the lock-in detects the, the, if you give it a signal that has some sinusoidal frequency component, the output of the lock-in amplifier is the magnitude of that frequency component. Everything other than this sine omega t. So it's going to be, the output signal is going to be proportional to the derivative. Okay, so that's what we have here. You can also have the lock-in detector measure the output at twice the modulation frequency, which would be the n equals 2 term, which would be the second derivative of the absorption line. So you can detect all the derivatives of the absorption line by de demodulating at the first, second, third, the nth uh, harmonic of your reference signal. So here's an example. It shows the difference between this uh, DC measurement technique and the frequency modulation technique. Here's uh, an absorption in water vapor that shows a direct DC measurement of a line taken the experiment that looks like this. You can see the large amount of noise that comes from the fact that this was taken near DC. And when the same water vapor was measured using the FM technique, the frequency modulation technique, the amount of noise is drastically reduced. So you hear a very clean signal. And this is, a, uh, this is a derivative of the actual signal. So you'd have to integrate that to get the, uh, the DC signal. So you can see from this that uh, moving to higher frequencies can drastically reduce the noise. That's why, why it's often done. Um, let's calculate how big of an effect that can be. Let's consider a signal from a photodetector illuminated by, illuminated by 100 milliwatts of CW uh, light at 500 nanometers that produces a signal of 10 volts on our photodetector. And we're told a little bit about the noise. 
uh, below one kilohertz, the noise has uh, a given magnitude. Above one kilohertz, the noise falls off as one over f. That's one over f. So that means at one kilohertz, it's this value. At 10 kilohertz, it's one tenth of that. And at 100 kilohertz, it's one one hundredth of that. Um, eventually, it will fall off until it hits a shot noise level. We can calculate the shot noise level knowing how much power there is. Um, so we know something about the noise in all three different frequency regions. Low frequency, high frequency, and intermediate. A 10 centimeter long absorption cell is placed in the path of the laser. Uh, the cross section is 10 to the minus 19 centimeters squared. And our power is average for 100 seconds. So given all that, what's the minimum detectable concentration that can be measured directly, meaning at DC? How well can we do if we use frequency modulation? And if we use frequency modulation at 12 megahertz, how well do we how well do we do? So those are the questions. So let's see. First, uh, minimum detectable concentration. the formula is a few slides previous um, to give us the minimum detectable concentration and I'm going to write this delta I over I naught Delta I over I naught is the relative intensity fluctuation of the laser. And in order to figure out or what information here can I use to figure out the minimum uh, relative intensity fluctuation that I can measure. So the noise, I have to use the noise. Signal. This relative change in the signal has to be greater than the, the noise. And at what frequency am I interested in? So low frequency, intermediate, or high? I'm doing part A. Well, so say measure directly. So when I say measure directly, I mean using a set setup like this. I'm not doing modulation of the frequency here. That'll be part B. You do frequency modulation to shift your measurement to higher frequency. So this must be lower frequency. Okay. So in fact, the frequency that I'm measuring at is one measurement every hundredth of a second. I have one measurement every 100 seconds. So it's 10 millihertz, very close to DC. OK, so at low frequencies, um, so below 1 kilohertz, certainly I'm below a kilohertz, the noise is flat, meaning constant as a function of frequency. 
And this is its magnitude. Okay, so what I need is, um, well, so the voltage noise is 10 to the minus 4 volts per root hertz. Okay, so let me explain the per root hertz for a minute. Whenever you're talking about measurements of noise, because noise is random, you would expect that if you average noise for a longer period of time, you could average out some of the noise. Right? The longer you integrate something, the longer you average something, the more its average will approximate uh, the expected value. So the amount of fluctuation you see in a quantities, in this case in a voltage, depends on how long you average. The longer you average, the less fluctuation there should be. So in order to express a noise source in a way that's independent of your averaging time, we use these units, some property per unit hertz, per root hertz. Okay, so what we have to do in order to get this uh, into an actual value for delta V, in terms of a voltage, how much do we expect the voltage to fluctuate from measurement to measurement? We have to divide this by the square root of our measurement time, uh, delta T. So I have some noise level. The greater my measurement time, the smaller the actual observed noise will be. In my case, it's going to be 100 seconds. And the noise that I will observe after integrating for 100 seconds is going to be one-tenth of what I would observe if I had only integrated for one second. And delta t is going to have units of seconds. So this is 10 to the minus 4 volts per square root of hertz right, times 1 over the square root of 100 seconds. So the square root of hertz here will cancel out the square root of seconds there. To produce a measurement to measurement variation in the voltage that I would see of 10 to the minus 5 volts. And that's what that's saying. Now, the relative fluctuation in the voltage sets a limit on how much the relative fluctuation in power can be and still be observed. So the voltage changes by one part per million just due to noise then I can only measure a change in intensity of one part per million. Right, so I'm trying to find delta i min over i naught. Delta v is 10 to the minus 5 volts. v is 10 volts. So my signal is 10 volts. 
I've got this noisy voltage signal. The noise has a magnitude of 10 to the minus 5 volts, and the average value of that signal is 10 volts. So the relative fluctuation in voltage is 10 to the minus 6. So assuming my detector is linear, I need a fluctuation in the intensity of 10 to the minus 6 to observe that. Okay, so I have all the values that I need. Uh, 10 centimeter long cell. So I'm doing all this in units of centimeters. So I will get some concentration as number of atomic elements or molecular elements uh, per cubic centimeter. And it works out to 10 to the 12 per cubic centimeter. I need at least that much material filling this 10 centimeter long cell in order to absorb one part per million of the incident power so that the dip in the power is greater than the noise of my photodetector. If the concentration of what you're trying to detect is less than this, you won't see it. You won't see it using this method. But because this is the noise below 1 kilohertz, we can go above a kilohertz where the noise is falling off. It's decreasing. As we have small, less noise, we should be able to see smaller concentrations. OK, so let's instead use frequency modulation. How high would the modulation frequency need to be for the best sensitivity? Okay, so let me let me write uh, the log of the voltage noise. I'm going to call that versus log of the frequency. That plot will look like this got a constant value up to 1 kilohertz. Above a kilohertz, the noise falls off as 1 over f. So on a log-log plot, it's a line with a slope of minus 1. It will continue to fall off, but as, the, uh, as that noise becomes smaller than the white shot noise, which is present at all frequencies, 
I will no longer see it. I will see the shot noise. And so there's some frequency here. I'll call it uh, f sub s, the frequency at which shot noise is first the dominant noise source. And I need to go to at least that frequency. have the best sensitivity. So I need to modulate the laser at a frequency that's at least that value for the best sensitivity. And if I go higher than that in frequency, uh, the noise, I don't get any improvement in the noise. I can go higher than that. I don't get necessarily a loss in signal either. So uh, the sensitivity becomes constant above that frequency. Okay, so where is that frequency? Um, I know something about this line. And I know something about this line. This is uh, 10 to the minus 4 volts per root hertz. So this line is falling off at 1 over f. So it has a value of 10 to the minus 4 volts per root hertz at, uh, at 1 kilohertz. It's falling off at 1 over f. So here's the expression for that line. And I need an expression for this line. The voltage of shot noise. If I have that, I will set shot noise equal to the 1 over f noise and solve for frequency. So uh, the shot noise power the relative amount of shot noise, so relative to the average power, is 1 over the square root of the number of photons that I have in my detector. The number of photons is equal to the energy of the, detec the detected energy. divided by the energy of a single photon, hc over lambda. And the detected energy is just the average power times however long I measure. So 
I'm not really interested in measuring powers. I'm interested in knowing voltages. Because everything that I've got, all these functions for the noise are given in terms of the voltage noise. So I will scale. all the powers to the equivalent voltage they produce. And I will factor out the 1 over square root of delta t. This is the part that depends on my, inter my measurement interval. So I'm going to have some amount of voltage noise. And the longer I integrate, the smaller that's going to be. That's a general property of noises. Um, so this quantity here is the shot noise expressed in some number of volts per root hertz. And when I include my time, my measurement time here, then I get some number of volts. In this case, uh, I have a measurement time, I have a wavelength, and I have my DC value for the voltage. So I can compute this. And I get 2 times 10 to the minus 8. Two times ten to the minus eight. This is the part that I'm computing. Okay, so the entire graph is plotted with values of volts per root hertz. So everything on this graph, if you integrate, gives me the voltage if I measure for one second. If I measure for 100 seconds, as I do in this problem, all these noises would decrease by a factor of 10. At the point where these intersect, I can now find, just by setting 2 times 10 to the minus 8, equal to 10 to the minus 4 times 1,000 over f. So that frequency, F sub S, is 5 megahertz. So if your photo detector, the output of your experiment, were hooked up to an oscilloscope, 
and you measure the time series of that signal. Say it looks something like that. That's the voltage as a function of time. If you take the Fourier transform of that, you get the amount of voltage noise at any given frequency. And that's this. So this is the Fourier transform of the time series of the output of the photodetector in the absence of any signal. Just constant amplitude laser light shining on the photodetector. So the noise frequency has nothing the, the frequency of the, the laser, right? That's right. It has nothing to do with the laser frequency. Um, now, if we dither our laser frequency at, say, well, I guess in the question here, we say, if we use 12 megahertz frequency modulation, meaning we take the laser frequency, the laser frequency is at terahertz. It's an optical frequency. But if we take that laser frequency um, and we shift it back and forth by a small amount, 12 million times a second, so 12 megahertz, um, then any signal that comes from that laser is also going to be changing at 12 megahertz. Or at least any signal that's frequency dependent will change at 12 megahertz. And so there'd be some fluctuation in this uh, time series of the voltage at 12 megahertz due to the signal, in addition to the fluctuation at 12 megahertz due to the noise, and at all the other frequencies due to the noise. Okay, so that 12 megahertz, or the uh, frequency that we're talking about here, is the frequency at which the laser frequency is modulated. Frequency of a frequency. If that sounds confusing, think back to what we started with. We had a cosine of a sine. So this argument in front of the T, or this factor in front of the T, is the frequency of the laser. And that's oscillating with some frequency capital omega. So we have a frequency that's frequency modulated. Uh, both of these two frequencies have nothing to do with this, the noise. O- this omega L has nothing to do with this capital omega. And they have nothing to do with the noise frequency, right? No, this omega L is the frequency of the laser. That's determined by whatever wavelength the laser is putting out. C over lambda is the frequency. 2 pi C over lambda is omega L. This omega is the frequency put out by this function generator. In the lab, you dial that up to 12 megahertz or whatever value uh, you choose, and that will tune the laser frequency back and forth at that rate. 
No. No, they don't. Um, but if you're smart, you will choose this modulation frequency such that the noise is low at that modulation frequency. So the experimenter should choose that modulation frequency to, according to the noise spectrum. But it's not caused by the noise spectrum or directly dependent on it. OK, so um, with direct detection, we can detect uh, the concentration of 10 to the 12 per centimeter cubed. How well can we do uh, with frequency modulation at 12 megahertz? So this is 5 megahertz. So out here at 12 megahertz, the voltage noise is 2 times 10 to the minus 8 volts per hertz. So we just go over here and we replace our 10 to the minus 5 volts. I guess sorry, we replace this 10 to the minus 4 volts per hertz with 10 to the minus 8 volts per hertz. Our noise voltage goes down by a factor of uh, 5,000. And then we can calculate the minimum concentration. And it's a factor of 5,000 smaller. Okay, so my analogy of this process is I'm riding home, it's dusk, it's not, well, maybe it's dark, and you've got your car headlights on, but you can't quite tell if they're on or not, right? You don't, it's not obvious looking out that there's not a whole lot in your way that's brightly illuminated that says, oh, my headlights are definitely on. How do you test if they're on? You flick them on and off, right? What would you expect to see? Darker and brighter. So there's nothing that's really bright out there, but maybe there's a bit of the road that is, is, is dimly lit. You don't know whether it's in the moonlight, the street lights, or your headlights. If you flick your headlights off, you expect uh, if, they're, if they are on and illuminating something, that thing to get dimmer. And as you flick them on and off, it should get dimmer and brighter at the same time that you're flick, flicking your headlights. You're doing frequency modulation. You're in an environment where there's, your signal is so small compared to the noises around you. Your headlights aren't producing very much illumination relative to all the other things around you. You can't directly observe it. But by turning it on and off, you can look for fluctuations in the intensity at the same rate as you're modulating. Okay, and because there's very little else out there that's intensity is fluctuating. So the moonlight, the street lights, those things aren't flicking on and off. You can shift your measurement to a, no, a less noisy frequency. OK, um, so that's frequency modulation. Two other me uh, mechanisms that I'll mention uh, to improve the sensitivity of absorption measurements. One is intracavity absorption. And as the name suggests, it's taking the uh, material that you're trying to detect, 
via absorption measurements and putting it inside of a cavity. Um, and the idea here is that we've seen that inside of a cavity, the laser power builds up, or light power builds up. And so by having more power in the cavity, you get increased interaction. Um, and in particular, if you do this with a laser cavity, then um, in a laser cavity, there's some material that has gain. The population inversion produces gain. And when the light goes through that material, it gets amplified. And then it goes around the cavity, and it gets uh, reduced or gets attenuated due to absorption, scattering, leaking through the mirrors. If the gain is bigger than the losses in one round trip, then what comes back is amplified. And that gets amplified more. And it continues to get amplified until you've saturated the gain and you reach a steady state. You have a laser. Now, if the losses are bigger than the gain, then after one round trip, your signal is not amplified. I mean, it gets amplified, and then it gets reduced. And the net effect is it gets reduced, so it decays. And you don't get lasing. So that's called threshold, the point where the gain is greater than the losses. And near threshold, um, the amount of power coming out of the laser is highly dependent on the amount of losses. And small changes in the losses can effectively turn the laser on or turn it off. And so you can uh, build a very sensitive measurement of small losses if those small losses are added to a laser that's just above threshold. Those additional losses can essentially turn the laser off. Okay, so. Inside of a cavity, the circulating power uh, is increased by a factor of the finesse of the cavity divided by pi. You saw that in one of the homeworks. Um, that's like increasing the interaction length by a factor of finesse over pi. So this longer interaction length gives you better, uh, allows you to detect a smaller concentration. And the fluorescence. Fluorescence can be imaged effectively because you have a small volume that you're exciting. Let me explain that statement. So one way to increase the interaction length with a sample is what's called a delay line or a Harriet cell. It's a pair of mirrors that essentially have a hole drilled in one of the mirrors off-axis. Light comes in off-axis, a beam, and the beam rattles around between the mirrors and follows some geometric path that eventually causes it to pass back out through the, that input hole. Okay, and in doing so, uh, you've multipassed this length. And so if you had, for example, a gas cell, as I've drawn it, you would have passed through that gas four times. Uh, you can get on the order of 100 passes back and forth between two mirrors. But in doing so, you can kind of see from the diagram that the location of the beam inside the sample is different for each pass. 
Uh, that can be a good thing if you're trying to absorb, if you're trying to avoid saturating the gas. But sometimes what you want to do is uh, pump the system to an excited state and observe the fluorescence that comes out. And particularly if you have a weak amount of fluorescence that you're trying to observe, it's helpful to have it all emerging from a single point or a very narrowly confined volume of space so that you can image it and get a high, relatively high intensity. Um, and that's not done effectively in one of these multipass cells. But in a laser cavity, where the beam is bouncing back and forth along a continuous line, then any absorption occurs localized on the location of the beam. So there can be some advantages to that. OK, so saturated gain inside of a laser is given by an expression that looks very much like the saturated absorption that we introduced for calculating the uh, saturated line width. We just replace absorption with gain. So if you have a population inversion, you get gain instead of absorption. If you have a circulating power that's small, the amount of gain is equal to what we call G naught, the unsaturated gain. But as the power builds up, eventually this denominator gets large and the amount of gain decreases as you're extracting power from the upper levels of, a, of, a pop, of an inverted uh, population in the lasing material. And once you've extracted most of the power, there's not much left to get out. And this uh, gain will eventually go to zero. So it stops amplifying once you've extracted all the energy out of it. Okay, So when you set up a laser, with a gain element and then some other round trip losses, the initial seed pulse will go back and forth, building up, building up. And as it builds up, the power output increases and increases until the gain gets saturated. So it gets reduced to the point where the gain equals the losses. And then in one round trip, there's no net change in power, and you've reached the steady state. And if we look then at a plot of the output power of the laser as a function of how hard we're pumping it, as we increase the pump power, initially nothing happens until there's a large enough population inversion that the unsaturated gain is greater than the losses. And then the output power can build up. And that's what happens here. The power builds up. And initially, it builds up at a certain rate. As you pump harder, you get more output power. There's a linear dependence. Um, but eventually, it saturates and rolls off. So the point where this turns on is called threshold. And that is where the gain equals the losses. So adding a small amount of loss changes that threshold. And so measuring the power with some lossy material in the laser cavity. Um, as you introduce the, the material, you'll see the power decrease from, say, this solid curve to this dotted curve, and possibly even turn off once the absorption exceeds the, uh, the round trip gain. 
Okay, so setting the saturated gain equal to the losses, A, and then solving for P, the output power, we get an expression that shows the output power in terms of some saturation power, some unsaturated gain, and the losses. So the output power depends on the loss. If that loss comes from absorption, measuring the output power is a way to measure the absorption. And if we look at how much the power changes when the absorption changes, we can take the derivative of the left side and the derivative of the right side and write the fractional change in power is related to the fractional change in absorption with this factor in front of it. And so if the unsaturated gain is very close to the losses in the cavity, this factor will be very large. That is to say, if your laser is operating just above threshold, then a small change in the absorption can produce a very large change in the power as the uh, laser basically turns on or off in the presence of some additional absorption. And that's the mechanism called intercavity absorption. So that's a steady state measurement where you have some laser cavity, you introduce some, uh, you measure the output power, you introduce some material to it, and you observe the change in the output power. There's a, uh, a temporarily changing measurement or a uh, dynamic measurement that you can do that forms uh, a type of spectroscopy called cavity ring down spectroscopy. Uh, pretty, pretty common these days. It's about a 20 year old technique. And the idea is that you have a, a cavity. This is not a laser cavity now. This is just an empty cavity, two mirrors. You send a pulse of light in. Uh, you make that pulse short compared to the cavity length. And if that happens, what you get is the pulse bouncing back and forth inside the cavity. And each time it hits this end mirror, a little bit of that pulse leaks out. And so over here, what you see is essentially a bunch of echoes of that pulse. In the audio analogy, you'd be yelling into a canyon, you hear a bunch of echoes come back. And that's what these pulses are. And the rate at which the amplitude of those pulses decay depends on how much absorbing material is in here. Okay, so if the cavity is empty and there's a certain decay rate for those echoes, when you load the cavity with some absorbing material, you'd expect that each successive pulse has more power absorbed, and therefore these echoes decay more rapidly. So measuring the decay rate of those echoes tells you about the material or the absorption inside the cavity. Okay, so we can start with uh, some input to or, yeah, some input to the cavity. I cavity at time zero. It's actually that's the output. That's the first pulse that comes out of the cavity. And then after every round trip, the magnitude of the pulse inside the cavity uh, would be the same if it weren't leaking out. But because it leaks out mirror one, it gets reduced by T1 squared. So T1 is the field transmissivity 
of mirror 1. So T1 squared is the power transmissivity. Some of the power leaks out mirror 2. So the power gets reduced by T2 squared. And some of the power gets absorbed by the material in the cavity. We'll call that A. So A is the fractional absorption of the material in the cavity. And so after n round trips, if each time this factor gives how much the power in the cavity gets reduced, raise that to the n, and we get the amount that the circulating power is reduced after n round trips. So the output power is proportional to the power in the cavity. And we can solve, for example, for how many round trips it takes for this cavity power to decrease to, say, 1 over e of the input power. That'll tell us about the uh, decay time of the cavity. Right, so take the natural log of both sides. Uh, we do that so that this n can come out front. Uh, we require this ratio be equal to e to the minus 1. The cavity power, or the output power is decayed to 1 over e. That makes this left side minus 1. And we solve for n, the number of times that the light has to circulate in the cavity to make that happen. And here I'm calling it m. So m is the number of times for the decay to go to 1 over e. And I have this expression here. And if I simplify this, or if I make an assumption that uh, all these losses are small compared to 1. So on each round trip, only a small fraction of the power is lost. Then I can write this natural log as natural log of 1 plus x and use a Taylor series approximation for this. So that's approximately equal to x. Okay, so the natural log of 1 plus this stuff is all that stuff. And I can say the number of round trips before the power decays to 1 over e is 1 over all these loss mechanisms. So that's the number of round trips. Each round trip has a time delay associated with it of 2L over C. So the total decay time tau is 2L over C times its value for M, given here. And if the absorption is larger than the amount of power lost through the mirrors, then I can neglect the T1 and T2s, as A will dominate the denominator. And I can solve for A. A will be 2L over C tau. That's in the limit of uh, a high finesse cavity. High finesse means low transmission. It's generally what you want. You measure the decay time. You relate it to the absorption coefficient through that relationship. Okay, so there's a paper that I asked you to read for today. We don't have time to discuss it. Uh, we will discuss it next time. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to go through it. Um, we are going to look for just instances in the paper where they refer to things that we've already talked about. Okay, so we can put all of the work that we've done into the context of an actual uh, scientific research. And it's on cavity ring down spectroscopy, but their motivation for introducing this technique and their description of it involve a lot of the things that we've already discussed. So it's kind of an interesting paper. Uh, if you do read it, bring, out, bring a copy of it with you next time, because we'll do some interactive work on it. Um, there's 11 cases, right? So do we need to read all of them? Um, I would say 
there's a couple pages where there's not a lot of interest to us. I don't have the pages. Let me count them. The fifth page talks about some statistics that we're not going to be interested in. But I suggest you read all the others. Um, and if, if you can make sense, if you can try to make sense of it, do so. If you can't, hopefully we'll clear it up in class. And some of it is just sort of beyond what we're talking about and not relevant. So it won't necessarily all make sense. Uh, the one that was assigned for Wednesday, we're not going to have time to discuss on Wednesday. So, so I will figure out whether we're going to do it on the following Monday or whether we're going to skip it. I will let you know next time.